Welcome to the Self Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is the podcast people tune into for in-depth discussions on the latest research from our foremost leaders in self-improvement, so you can be growing and more equipped to live at your fullest capacity in body, mind, and soul. In this episode, I'm back with Wendy K. Smith, an expert on organizational paradoxes and co-author of Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. That's what we went through in episode 1051. Today, we're walking through Wendy's personal values, motives, and habits, and the key areas of life fulfillment, so we can hear what is driven and does drive her to help us avoid the pitfalls and anxiety of either or thinking, and what she does to design a life that fulfills her, which of course includes holding a lot of tensions of both and thinking. Some highlights, she shares her Jewish upbringing and some rabbis, some uh, influence of rabbis who advocated ongoing conversations where Wendy cites they rarely came up with conclusive answers, which of course is highly relatable to her topic of holding the tensions of paradox where it's not just black and white, right and wrong. She discusses the obvious tensions most of us have with work and family. Her health and wellness goals center around what will help her, as she quotes, show up in the world in the most productive way. I really, really like that. And we talked more about that for her career. A perspective she tries strives for is it's not about making the right decision, but about making the decision right. Again, another perspective that really meant a lot to me. And even though she's just had her book come out and is more than ever a sought after speaker, when I ask her about achievements, she says, as of late, best one was witnessing the emotional intelligence and empathy from her 10 year old child. So that and more is coming up again. You can get Wendy Smith and her co-author, Marion W. Lewis, her book, both and thinking, embracing creative tensions to solve your toughest problems. You can find that at Amazon or of course, anywhere. Folks, I have a special add-on for this show. Following this discussion with Wendy K. Smith and her values, motives, and habits, I'm going to bring you a special note from my great friend and often co-host, CEO of Ziggler, proud son of Zig Ziggler, Tom Ziggler. He's co-presenting at a live event in Reno, Nevada, October 26th through the 28th of 2022 on generational wealth with Laurel Langmire, who we had here on the show in episode 988 and talked about money. Well, in this 20 minute clip, again, it's going to be at the end of this podcast. She asks Tom how he defines what leaving a legacy looks like. Now, I'm shamelessly promoting the event, but as you'll hear, the point of this clip is, in fact, Tom Ziegler talking about legacy, which was a hallmark of Zig Ziegler and now is of Tom Ziegler and the Ziegler Corporation. At the end of our days, we all want to feel we had meaning on this earth and especially to those we hold most dear. So stay tuned at the end of this podcast to enjoy Laurel asking Tom about legacy. And if you're interested in the Generational Wealth Conference that they'll mention, you can go to genwealthconference.com dot com slash Tom Ziegler, genwealthconference.com slash Tom Ziegler. All right. Next up, my conversation with Wendy K. Smith, co-author of Both and Thinking and Her Values, Motives, and Habits.
Wendy, this will, I'm interested to hear some of your perspectives on values and habits in these areas, especially as I know uh, that you are making decisions on the both and thinking, not the either or thinking. And that's what comes into play when we look at how am I going to walk out my values in these certain, what, even what values am I going to choose, which you know, we didn't really get, we didn't get into that top topic of values, but as we're about to embark on that right now, I mean, at the, at the, you brought up morality that we often put in these decision-making, but at the end of the day, I mean, we're looking at these decisions, taking our values, and that's pretty much what we're making the decisions on. Hopefully that, and not just, you know, peer pressure or something of that nature. True. Well, I think that's one component of it. Okay. I mean, we're also making decisions on efficiency or, uh, you know, maybe that's a value. I mean, I think for me, that's always a value. It's a huge <laughs> like, value for me. I want yeah. to get stuff done quickly. Way too much. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Fair. Well, so spiritual, that's uh, one that I, yeah. I don't know why I start off with that one uh, to begin with, but it's one where, yeah, talk about values. Tell me uh, how that plays out in your life. Yeah. So Kevin, first of all, I like, I love that you do this and in part it's connected. And so thank you. Um, I love the idea of thinking about not just a person and their ideas, but the holistic picture of how people come to their ideas, how they think about them. And, you know, as a both and thinker, I love the sort of holistic picture of the whole thing. Oh, thank so you. Thank you. Wendy. I love that. And, um, you know, I think what's going to be unsurprising is that so much of the, so many of the ways that I think about these things are related to these ideas of paradox and both and, and, yeah. you know, I, I was thinking, um, I've, I've forever been intrigued that in my field, there are so many people who think about paradox or that were some of the early leaders of paradox and had some kind of a commitment to and relationship to either, um, organized religion or a spiritual practice yeah. because there is something about this idea of like the ebb and flow of opposing ideas and contra interwoven contradictions that are really bound up in spiritual life, right? Like we're constantly engaging in that um, sort of spiritual ebb and flow. And, and it's, and what's, what it's intriguing to me is that it's across the board. It's not one particular religion. It's very different religions that yeah. sort of and and spiritual practices that bring people to this i mean these ideas some of these ideas about paradox i mean we're talking ideas that have gone back to buddhist thought 2500 years ago and to mbutu thought you know thousands and thousands or like you know greek uh philosophy years ago so so i just want to say that as a backdrop and it is true that for me, these ideas of paradox also came out of um, my own religious uh, journey, if you will. I am um, Jewish and grew up sort of culturally Jewish, but not particularly um, observant, nor particularly um, uh, understanding sort of the, the nuance. And when I graduated college, I decided that I was really interested in understanding the philosophical roots and backgrounds. So I, uh, after college, and this was, you know, I think I had told the story previously that I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after yeah. college. So this was like the perfect non-decision decision, which is that rather than jump right into uh, work, I went and spent two years living in Israel in service of doing a deeper dive on Jewish philosophical thought. Wow. And, um, you know, I want to, uh, so much of my thinking about paradox actually comes from that. So, so at the root, you know, the, the, the sort of core Jewish 
texts, traditional texts is, is called the Talmud. Mm -hmm. And this, what this text is, is that it's a text of um, first an oral tradition that was handed down from generation to generation to generation, eventually written down. And I think it's like 200 BC, but written down eventually. And a page of Talmud, if you will, has that text as the center and then commentary on that text flanking it all around it with commentary from scholars and rabbis across the generations. So it's this fascinating sort of page where what you see is this ongoing conversation, this living conversation across generations, trying to interpret and understand the text. And the invitation then to be part of that, you know, we as a generation now become part of that ongoing conversation. And the important piece, what's interesting or what was intriguing to me was the nature of the text and the process of studying it. So I'll just take a minute to describe it because I yeah. think it's really rich in in um, its its uh, symbolism, but also in its messages. Right. So the in this in this text, what it is is rabbis, scholars in conversation with one another about issues, debating these issues, rarely coming up with a conclusive answer, uh, but really in ongoing debate. And in fact, there's a quote at some point in the Talmud that says that the rabbis were talking with one another, having these debates, you know, in, con you know, and, and there, there's actually two really sort of famous rabbis that come up again and again. One's called Hillel, one's called Shammai, and they and their students uh, are in these constant debates over issues, you know, as nuanced as how to, you know, practice a specific piece of religious observance to like more sort of broader, how do we behave in the world? And they're in constant debate. And at some point uh, in the Talmud, there's a line that says, you know, that the translate, elu elu, these and these are the way to a better truth. Like that, that even as they're in conflict with each other, these ideas, it's the engaging, it's, it's the opposing ideas coming together that get us to a better place. And in fact, and, I, and I'll just say one more thing here, the way to study Talmud, the, the classic way to study this is not to just go read it and sort of think, what do I think? It's in um, a partnership, that partnership, the, 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 name for it is called a chavruta, and it comes from the word chaver, which means friend. But it's sort of this sparring partner where you and somebody else are reading through this text together. And the idea is that you you build over time this really deeply trusted relationship and in service of ongoing debates so that you can essentially, there's, there's some language of sharpen each other, make each other's arguments more sharp, more clear, more understandable. And so the, the text itself is this compilation of these complex but interwoven, you know, opposing ideas. And the way to study them is in this partnership of interwoven ideas. And I think that that's always had a really profound effect of, on me of, okay, so what, there's something big here. And the important thing to me then is that it's not just big in Judaism, although this is how it plays out in Judaism, it's big as you look across religions, yeah. seeing these kind of, it's not black and white, but these kind of complex understandings of the relationship between interwoven opposites. Well, two things I, I appreciate there. There's a movie, I think it's called The Nativity, uh, and in it, they depict the three wise men. And what I appreciate is it depicts them as kind of being these somewhat cranky old guys to each other, that they're, they're the wise men. 
you know, and yet they're sitting here sparring with each other. And there's that terminology of, you know, as iron sharpens iron and, and kind of back to what we talked about, even in the first thing that the, that the benefit of that, I would, we didn't say that, but I like that word, the sparring of these ideas and different perspectives. And if we extrapolate that and I'll just kind of make the analogy, if that's what makes them wise, then that just lends itself to your whole message here. But to, you know, to your commentary somewhat on spirituality, um, and I, I come from a, you know, staunch Christian background and I look especially at the culture today and I feel like the effort and the perspective of certainty is why we are seeing the, in many ways, the demise of the church, um, Mm. is that certainty is that unwillingness to hold the both and, uh, aspects of that. And I know that that's going to ruffle some people's feathers. I was trying to say that without making some big statement, but when we look at certainty, when we look at something like the, the Talmud or, or, or the Bible and look at that, and we're looking at it as humans. And my thought is, is God so small that we can read that and absolutely be certain on how we translate that. I struggle with putting God in that small of a perspective and not leaving room for some mystery and some both and thinking as you showcase to us. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing is that in formal religion and in spirituality, there are places where we see, and you had mentioned this before, like some real sort of like very clear black and white, this is what it says. And I think that if we dig deeper, what we often find is, you know, not this is what it says, but these are the debates these are the discussions. These are the sort of rich, you know, and it, it's not, a, it, it's about sort of the ongoing living complexity of the debates and the nuance of this relationship of, of, you know, good and evil. You know, it, again, it, there's a Jewish thought that says that every person has within them both like the propensity for good and the propensity for evil. And we, the, the understanding that we are always, and, and, and it's in Christian thought too, right? Like we're always grappling between those. Yeah. And we can't just, by the way, get rid of the propensity for evil because the propensity for good actually leads us into place, you know, without sort of that curiosity that sometimes, you know, might seem like leading us towards sin, but like inviting us into um, sort of thinking a little bit more deeply about things sometimes. And so it's like this always, you know, living in between those rela- that relationship between them. Well, I appreciate what you said in the story of the rabbis and you said rarely coming up with a conclusive answer. And again, this is to the heart of what we talked about in part one of can, do I have to have a conclusive answer? Now I may make a decision, but can I make that decision? And in confidence and humility saying, I'm making a decision. I do not have a conclusive answer, but I do need to make a decision here on what action I'm going to take, what I am, or I'm not going to do. Um, and I'm doing that without a conclusive answer, but this is the best I can come up with. And if we're on the spiritual aspect, I would say that is why it's called faith, not certainty. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. And by the way, the invitation of this like non-conclusive answer, and again, it's your point, you have to make a decision and you can continue to revise that decision. But, you know, and and the, the sort of invitation, I think, of the Talmud is to invite the idea that the, to your point earlier, the journey, the grappling, the, the sharpening our own arguments is just as important as knowing exactly what to do, maybe more important. You know, it's sort of the engagement in the discussions and the debates is critical. I, well, and that's what I feel like you, at least for me, have brought to light in the, in, in the message in the book from you and Marianne. 
Um, relationships is next, which uh, to me is a, a pretty spiritual place as well. But so relationships, when you look at that, tell me about your uh, values there. And I know you've got family. You've got, you mentioned in the first one that you've got, I wondered if anybody caught that. You said, I got two, two 16 year olds. Those right. are twins. Uh, one, right? of, one of your top three <laughs> achievements that you said, that's awesome. <laughs> exactly. And in fact, you can see a lot of both ending and raising twins oh for sure. Gosh. How they try and distinguish themselves from one another and yet what's their ways of being interwoven with each other. There's a lot of a lot of paradox there oh for my sure. Gosh. I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure. Kudos to you. You know, um, I was thinking about this because uh, and in the first part we talked a little bit about um some of the discussions I have with my husband and my kids and those are, you know, and, and my parents and like, and, and my, my extended family, my sister, like those are some of the most precious relationships. And I spend a lot of time thinking about this question of how do I, um, how do I create meaningful experiences for all of us? Hmm. And right, like right, right there, the work, work life tension comes right in, you know, how do I create meaningful opportunities, meaningful moments, meaningful, uh, you know, um, relationships so that we, we really are not just in relationship because of our, of our familial ties, but that we have meaningful relationships with each other. And, you know, what really struck me in thinking about, particularly, we've been talking about this book, and I have the real um, honor of having this conversation with you. And, you know, I was thinking a little bit about my relationship with Marianne, who's my co-author, mm. uh, because that's been an, uh, a poignant and really important relationship in my career and then in my life, um, which is, you know, what kind of relationships do we have with colleagues that push us to be better people and more um you know, better colleagues, better, better at the work that we do and better people. And Marianne and I have been working together for over 20, 25 years now oh. on, on these issues. And, uh, um, I, you know, I feel so grateful to her for, for the relationship that we have as colleagues and coworkers and co-authors working together. Um, you know, and I, I like to say that we, we first met, I, you know, uh, I always joke that we first met because I stalked her. There was this uh, great piece from Warren Bennis where he talks about stalking your mentors. And she had written a brilliant piece on paradox in our top journal that had won that journal's best paper of the year award. But it was one of the very few papers on paradox. People weren't really writing about paradox in the context of organizations. Hmm. There were several people, but it was not a popular topic when we first started writing about this. So I called her up and I said, you know, um, I'm really intrigued about this idea of paradox. It fit into what I was writing about in my own work. You know, can you meet with me and tell me everything you know? And we sort of say that the rest is history, but I, I think that the rest is that uh, we have over the years built an incredibly uh, trusting relationship in which we have been able to define what each of us are really, we, we both have very similar ideas on some things so that we can speak a similar language, but we also have some really clear differences in some of the skills that we bring to the table and how we work together. We have some real clear differences in some of our own political beliefs and in our own uh, ways of engaging in the world. We have some differences in the choices that we've made about our careers and I think that it's because of those differences that we have been able to enrich our work together because it just adds to, because we know our differences and we're able to talk through them and we're able to think about them together, that we can 
you know, sharpen each other, if you will, you know, the sharp iron, iron sharpens iron and um, really uh, help each other grow. And I am so grateful to that kind of a relationship. You know, it's interesting in some of the analogies that you showcased in the book. And I think it was even in the paradoxes, uh, and I'm scrolling up to my own notes here, where you separated those out into four different segments. And we didn't really go through that. We don't have to necessarily now, but you talked about, um, well, performing paradoxes, belonging paradoxes, organizing and learning. So the one here of, and I think you mentioned it somewhere, do I, for you, do I go for, am I a career person uh, or am I a family person? What would that be under performing belong? Would that be belonging? You know, it's funny, like I see that tension sort of showing up in a bunch of these. You know, one of the reasons we actually talk about these four is to show just how prevalent these paradoxes are in so many aspects of our lives and our goals and what we're trying to accomplish in the method that we, you know, that would be the performing paradoxes in the method and how we accomplish it. And those are the organizing paradoxes in like how we understand ourselves and our identity relative to that. And these would be the belonging paradoxes in how we think about, you know, what we're trying to accomplish now in the short term versus the long term and the change over time. And those would be the learning paradoxes you know, and work life sort of fits into so many of those. There's these ten- underlying tensions of our goals. There's these tensions about our identities and the tension between what we need ourselves and others. You know, there's so many different paradoxes that fit into that. Well, and obviously with this one, as we're talking about relationships, uh, it was it was not a a polarized thing for you, career and family. Obviously, you're doing both. I mean, you're holding yeah. those. Well, is that what you would say? You're ho- you're you're holding the tensions. Of those? I'm holding the tension on an ongoing basis. And it's not easy because each dilemma, right? So the paradox of work and life, self and other, it shows up in all these moments. I mean, there's these ongoing moments of these tensions of, you know, how am I going to spend my time? That question comes up all the time. Am I going to go on this work trip or am I going to, am I going to, and therefore miss the big cousins family July 4th event this year? Am I going to be home for dinner or am I going to finish off this project that I'm doing? You know, like they, they come up all the time. And again, it's sort of the way, and it, it wasn't easy. I mean, I remember when my twins were first born, having so many conversations with friends where it felt like, you know, it felt like we were living in, in this bottom half. We talked about the, like the polarity map that, Barry Johnson, where, you know, you sort of like, what's the upside of each side and what's the downside of each mm-hmm. pole? And I felt like I was, li- you know, like, like it, when you first have kids, you're like, you're sort of strung out on so many different demands. It's like, you know, and you're exhausted and it feels like you're in the worst of both sides. Like, I'm not doing well at work because I can't focus my brain right. on it. And, I, you know, I'm not a good enough mom because I'm leaving my kids home with, you know, or bringing them to daycare, whatever it is. Like, it feels like nothing's good enough. And, um, you know, I had to really reframe. I had to really rethink uh, how I framed the question and how I thought about the relationship between work and life. So I wasn't feeling like I was not good enough at, you know, I was not good at anything to, I was good enough. And 
over time. And this is, you know, this is certainly what's happened. Like my career has been a source of pride for my kids. And that, you know, we talk about my work and they are engaged with, you know, what I do and they're proud of it. And I can bring home things that I do to really inform how I parent. And, you know, being more connected to my kids allows me to be able to be more free to do the work that I want to do. So, so over time, doing both has really benefited me and my family. But that wasn't easy to see when my kids were first born and I was completely exhausted and I wasn't sleeping and I was, you know, on a lot of caffeine and whatever else. <laughs> and it felt so new and I felt so judged by everybody and, 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 right? Well, and it brings up your point too of you did not walk through that. You are not walking through that balanced, but you are continually balancing. Balancing. Yeah, I, right. I love the... And Kevin, I want to tell you, we often, we use this tightrope walking metaphor yeah. for balancing, but I want to tell you because, you know, not everybody's walked the tightrope. We often say like, you know, to, to your world, right? It's the same as riding a bicycle, right? Yeah. You're never like, you're right. And, and, and the important piece about riding the bicycle is that when you get to be an expert, you know, or even just like a, like, like me, not a, not a, not a mountain biking uh, competitor, but you know, when you're just sort of riding your road bike, like you sort of, you don't realize that you're balancing at some point, like at some point it becomes second nature that you're just sort of constantly shifting your weight, but that's what you're doing. You're never like, you know, you never, if you stop and balance on the bicycle, you fall over. Well, it's, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right to imagine riding along. And if you all of a sudden fixed the fixed your handlebars solid you'll fall over really quickly. You're, con you're constantly making minute adjustments and micro shifts. Exactly. Yeah. And tomorrow's race that I'll be doing, I'll be making yeah. lots of massive adjustments every single month. Yeah. Well, again, I love the perspective. Well, health and wellness is the next one. And that's a fun one we talked about, or you talked about in the first, in part one, that you have been vegan, vegetarian, but yeah. then, um, balancing that somewhat. I know that about you. And I appreciate this. You said one of your top three achievements being the last, the last person to finish the Tiberius marathon. Did I say the Tiberius, right? Yes, uh, and I had I to look, that, I had to go look that up. What is that? An <laughs> annual marathon road race held along the sea of Galilee in Israel yeah. with a yeah. field in recent years of approximately a thousand competitors. Uh, that was the first, you said it was the first marathon that you ever ran. That's significant. <laughs> Holy smokes. Kevin, I have to tell you when I ran it back in 1998, I think it was, there was not a thousand competitors. There was like several hundred wow. or maybe half of them were U.S. service uh, men, mostly men, maybe women coming up from, um, they were in the Sinai and they were coming up to run it from there. So they weren't particularly marathon runners. They just thought they would join in for the fun of it. The other half of the people were professional marathoners or what felt to me like uh, professionals, the kind of marathoners that, that are going around the world to really interesting locations so that they can run marathons. And then there was me running my first marathon and uh, the way that the marathon worked, it was one of these, it goes partially around the sea of Galilee. It stops and then it does a hairpin turn and goes back. And because it was not a popular sport at the time in Israel, which is now very much is running is a big thing in Israel. But at the time it was not. It was like not this, you know, like when you do the Boston Marathon, you've got like hordes of people cheering you on. There was nobody on the side. <laughs> 
all of the professional marathoners would way out in front and had gotten to the finish line. All of the like U.S. servicemen that were not like had basically stopped and gotten the ride back and like didn't finish. And then there was me and they were closing down the finish line before wow. I got there. but I finished it. That's the important part. I got through it. I finished it. I have run several marathons since. Uh, I'm not a fast runner, but I am a dedicated and committed one. That is for sure. That's awesome. Okay. Well, obviously then, so as we're talking about value, so health and wellness, you have, uh, I'll I'll let you tell, you've got some significant values. You have uh, a specific nutritional, uh, a dietary venue or, or, or directive that you go towards. And, um, obviously running amongst other things. So talk about that. How did that come to be the value that it is? Cause yeah. as you know, not everybody holds those same values. Yeah. And I just want to give a shout out by the way, because on the running piece, my son and I are going to run his first 5k on Sunday. Oh, excellent. Uh, and so the Philadelphia distance run, which has a half marathon, which I've done, and we're going to run the 5k and uh, you know, we might have to walk part of it given and depending on how much his training has gotten him there. But we have said to each other, the most important thing is crossing the finish line, whatever time that is. Sweet. And it will probably run another 5k after that at some other point. And so I want to give him a shout out. Um, but to answer your question, how did, how did I, how did I get, you know, it, it's, um, I don't know how I got here. I think a lot, uh, you know, I, I both, tweak and practice a lot of that of how can I feel healthy in service of showing up in the world in the most productive way. Um, and I think a lot about how can I not get so caught up in worrying about if I'm so healthy that I spend all my time doing that, that I'm no longer productive. <laughs> so I understand that. Like you can, you can, I, you know, I, I think a lot about like drinking a lot, you know, drinking 75 ounces of water each day. And I, and I think a lot about, you know, sleep is important to me. And sometimes uh, there's a project that's due and I have to give up on the sleep. And sometimes, you know, so, so I, I do think a lot about those things in part because it just feels better to show up healthy and, um, you know, there's moments where I'm just totally committed to work heads down and, and can sort of feel that burnout. And so, again, it goes back to this, like, constant calibration, constant experimenting and being, being um, I, I guess the word is having grace with myself hmm. to, uh, to know that sometimes I'll get out of whack and have to revisit and re-experiment. And that's okay. So we just talked about relationships and career and family, which you are heavily engaged in both. You have a vibrant career happening. You've got a vibrant family happening. And what I hear you saying is your motive, your your values, but your motive for your health and wellness pursuits is pretty much directed around being the best. Well, you said showing up to be your most productive self in your career for your family. Um, That's the motive behind your health and wellness pursuits. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, big piece of that mind and mental health, uh, which, you know, we ended part one with, I really, I looking at the anxiety ridden culture that we are in today, not to put it all on this, but how much comes from the polarization we have on every topic, the pressure to be certain to use that word again. And I feel like, Oh my gosh, what a mental health benefit to uh, adopt both and thinking and not have to be 
certain back to what you said uh, with the, the rabbis, the having a conclusive answer on everything. Granted, we still have to make a decision and that can cause anxiety, but can we do that in a better way, which I feel like that's where you're leading us. Yeah. I mean, thank you for saying that. I am. Um, we, we do hope that these ideas get into people's hands in service of helping at the individual level, people to um, lead more, um, full lives, full meaning that they feel good, that they feel good about who they are and how they show up in the world, full meaning that the ways that they engage and contribute to the world. I mean, the, I, I often say, you know, and I, and I teach, I, I, I teach leadership. I mean, that's what I mostly do is I'm a professor and I teach leadership and I tell my students, whether it's my MBA students or my executive students, like the world has a lot of problems. And we need people who are willing and able and confident to show up and bring their talents and their skills to help solve those problems. And that's what I see leadership as. That's what I see myself teaching, which is how can I create the help my students, again, whether it's executives or whether it's my MBA students to create the conditions where they feel like they have the the confidence and the clarity to show up and help solve problems in the world. When you look at your own mind and mental health, are there, is it, do you look at yourself as mostly adopting a mindset that keeps you at the mental state you want to be and, or are there specific daily habits that you employ? Yes. And, okay. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, Kevin, that's like a professional, you know, hazard is that when everyone says an, or it's like, and <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that again, I partially went into studying this idea of both and because I was doing a lot of black and white thinking and getting really stuck and, yeah. you know, black and white thinking about my own capabilities. I don't know about, about you or, you know, your, your listeners, but like increasingly there's this idea of a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. Sure. That's a, that's the idea of, a, do we have black and white either or thinking about our capabilities, the fixed mindset, or do we have a more nuanced uh, sort of contextualize understanding of both and mindset about the potential for who I am now and who I will be in our growth over time, right? That's what a growth mindset is. And um, uh, so I, I think, um, you know, studying this, this idea has also invited me to think about what does it mean in my own decision making in my own world, if something goes wrong, and just, just yesterday, I had a moment where I like I engaged in an activity, like I, I was giving a, a talk, and I didn't like the way it went. It was not, you know, I didn't, when I give a talk, and it feels like, oh, that really worked. And I didn't feel like it, it wasn't terrible. But it wasn't like, great. I didn't walk away feeling like, oh, that really like nailed it. And I was really just sort of like down on myself and bummed. And I went right to that judgment place and right to that imposter place. Who do I think I am to be giving that like all of those things that we talk about. And um, I went back to both and thinking like I both can uh, give this talk and I can learn from it for what's possible in the future. This growth mindset, right? You no, know, I can both be upset that it didn't go as well. You know, this kind of emotional ambivalence. My colleague, Naomi Rothman talks about the value of emotional ambivalence, both knowing that you have negative and positive emotions can be highly valuable. So I can both honor the negative emotions and not like go down this kind of not this, this, downward spiral, this vicious cycle where the negative emotions start triggering more negative emotions and keep going down. I can just say yes to them, 
yeah, I, I kind of feel a little crappy that it didn't go as well as I want. And ask the question, okay, well, how can I learn from that? You know, I can and, and be able to sort of move beyond. So, you know, I think that this kind of both anding has helped me, does help me when I go down this negative spiral. It helps me name the negative emotions and find the potential for the positive. You know, I'll say one more thing, because I think this is important for mental health. Um, uh, one of the things we talk about in the book is the importance of finding comfort in the discomfort. Yeah. And what we mean by that is that in in relation to both anding, it can be uncomfortable. We talked about that a lot. The uncertainty can be uncomfortable. The accepting that there's different opinions that are different than mine can be uncomfortable. We are not arguing that you have to get rid of the discomfort, but rather to honor it so that you don't act out of the discomfort, right? You have to honor, oh, there's fear. Oh, there's anxiety. And here I love the work of um, Buddhist uh, psychologist teacher Tara Brock, whose book uh, Radical Acceptance, grounded in Buddhist thought, would art, you know, makes the argument so powerfully that um, if we deny our negative emotions, all they do is come back and rebound and hit us even more powerfully. So how about starting with accepting our negative emotions and our, and just saying, yeah, like, yes, you know, and, and she will say, you know, like you just say, yes, that yes, I feel jealous right now of my colleague. Yes. I feel angry right now at myself for not preparing more. Yes. I feel disappointed, you know, whatever it is. And, um, you know, I find that's incredibly helpful to, you know, yes, the negative and, and accept it so that it doesn't expand and actually it allows it to contract. So the more that we give space for it, the less it takes. I mean, there's something paradoxical right there. The more that we give space and honor our negative emotions, the more that they uh, retreat rather than expand. Yeah, thank you for confirming what my therapist says. She'll appreciate, <laughs> she'll appreciate that. Her, the, her terminology is, Kevin, sit in them. Sit, feel it and sit in it. Don't in medicate. It. Don't go for a run. S feel it for a moment. I, I do want to ask, when you said emotional ambivalence, yeah. um, that the word ambivalence, I, I would have taken a different direction, but the way right. you framed it, I, I want to say, you're in essence saying em emotional paradox that I feel this and yeah. The, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. It, I, and you know, the word ambivalent doesn't necessarily mean that you're wishy-washy. It means that you're sitting in two different things. It's, it's paradox. It's paradoxical. Huh. Work, uh, career, business. And we talked about that uh, a little bit uh, and you're in a place yeah. now with a lot happening with work. You've got a book uh, that, uh, of yeah. course, I'm, I'm holding it right here. It hasn't, it hasn't officially come out yet. It comes out. Uh, no, no, it oh, yeah, has. It did, it did, it did. It has. I just have a, I, I have a galley has. copy. I've got a. You do. We got to get you the right. I always have the unofficial version. Um, so yeah, it did. It just came out. And so you've got a lot happening, a lot of opportunities. You talked about just speaking somewhere. So you're at a, probably an acute place of having to look at, okay, what are the values that you're going to place and employ uh, around this? Tell me about it. Well, I, I love that. And, you know, it does feel like uh, this is one of those junctures where I'm looking out and trying to decide what's next. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to um, hold the wisdom <laughs> of my previous decisions where I would get so wrapped up in, in figuring out that I need to make a decision 
uh, between opposing ideas and actually allow these decisions to unfold more um, on their own time and a little bit more over time. And uh, um, and again, I had told the story earlier about I was really in this complex decision about what I should do with the rest of my life and found that actually that decision sort of made itself. It, It kind of, yeah, I had to make a decision about what to do, but I had to also let that decision marinate a little bit. Um, I have uh, one of my advisors on my dissertation was Ellen Langer, uh, is Ellen Langer, a brilliant social psychologist who wrote this amazing book in the late 1980s called Mindfulness uh, that is so worth revisiting again today. And she's written since then. And she would always say, you know, Wendy, it's not about, and this goes back to this decision fatigue, it's not about making the right decision. It's about making the decision Right. Meaning that, you know, sometimes we make a decision and we have to choose one or the other. And it's a question of how we implement that decision, how we revisit it, how we think about it. So it's not about am I going to choose between, you know, academia or medicine, I mean, or, you know, leadership or medicine. I mean, eventually I have to make a choice about which path I'm going to go down. And there's so many different ways to engage in these different paths, right? I could have chosen medicine, but then figured out how to engage in leadership within the medical field and bring together these different interests of mine. I chose to go down leadership and actually academia, which is about teaching, you know, but I teach about leadership, you know, and the reason I loved medicine was because of its direct impact. So, and how do I think about doing this? doing this academic thing, doing my profession in a way that I'm able to think about having impact. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we wrote the book is to take all this work that we've been doing in academia that sits in the ivory towers of knowledge and say, how can we translate that into a way that we can engage a broader community and have more impact with it, a broader audience, a broader conversation and have more impact with it. So it's not about making the right decision. It's about making the decision right. I, I just wrote that down. Um, I, I love that. Give me, the, and give me her name again that you pulled Ellen up. Langer. Ellen Langer. Ellen Langer. Okay. I'm getting, I, I'm writing, I'm getting more resources from you than I think I have from any guests so far. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Here's, I'm, I'm, I'm mapping out my next year of uh, guests for the show. Um, <laughs> Money, uh, finances, yeah. and wealth. Tell me about the values around that. Kevin, I have an idealized value around this, one that doesn't always play out because it's hard to in our society, but I definitely have an idealized value. And here um, I would pull out the work of Charles Eisenstein and his book, Sacred Economics. So there's another one for you. And he talks about how we've become a society in which we highly value the accumulation of wealth. Uh, And um, what that means is that we have a lot of money in bank accounts. That's not moving. That's not energetic. That's not making a difference. That's not sort of moving around. And would we have a more sacred economics in which more people are being able to be taken care of in the world by having resources that aren't being, you know, the pejorative term would be hoarded, the, you know, valuable term would be accumulated and be able to share those resources in the same way, you know, and, and he goes back to to um, bartering societies where the goods that we have had to be in flow with one another in order to be able to get the goods that we needed to be able to live in the moment. And so I have a bit of an idealized vision of what that could look like. It's not 
you know, I don't want to put a label on it because I think the labels feel like they don't fully describe, you know, uh, this describe the value of it because I wouldn't label myself into socialism or communism or capitalism. I think there's again, huge values, huge value in what we have as a capitalistic system that really inspires growth and change and innovation and technology. And there's value in thinking about a system where that growth and change and innovation and technology does not um, create this lopsided sense where there's so much accumulation of wealth within such a small number of people, but rather sort of more spread out. And so, um, so I, I, I feel, um, I feel like there's an idealized sense of at a personal level, thinking about what it means to have resources that are, that become more abundant by being in flow rather than become more scarce by being in a stock situation. Um, but that's not the world that we live in right now. Well, it's interesting for you to say that I found myself talking with my kids and them questioning uh, a lot of wealth. You know, you take the latest billionaire or, or whatever. And I find that those who are, you know, often at the, at the really high ends of wealth, you, people have the perspective that they are just sitting in there sitting on it. And yet I often find with a lot of them uh, on the good side that it's out there working. It's out there doing yeah. things. It's not just them sitting on a pile. And it's interesting knowing you from your uh, Jewish uh, heritage, one of the people that I revere in this arena of money, finances and wealth is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Uh, he's, uh, his book, thou shall, thou shall prosper and his talk about money being a certificate of appreciation, but a lot of, had a lot of good discussions around yeah. that. And, you know, the Jewish culture, I feel like has, uh, I appreciate the views on wealth and, and yeah. money that comes from that. That is your, is your background as well. Well, thank you. I like, yeah. I do, and I, I think it's a really complex topic. I don't want to like flatten it because there's so much in that you know, in these ideas um, that I think, we, you know, we could spend hours and hours and hours on this one. And, you know, I think that there, I have a lot of empathy for people as, as yeah. you know, wealth is often as a, um, an indicator of status and also an ability to be able to get more stuff done. I mean, it, it, there's not, I don't poo poo wealth at all. And it, you know, it's a double-edged sword and it beca becomes a pursuit unto itself sometimes where we sort of lose sight of what else we're trying to accomplish more broadly. So, you know, I think that I have a lot of, a lot of empathy around the complexity of this topic. Well, I appreciate the both and thinking, uh, right. appropriate here. The, the last one here, uh, Wendy is, uh, achievements and interests. And, and this one, I, I'm always curious about the things that people just do just out of interest, hobbies, the things that you do for, yeah. for fun. I, I want to know that. Um, but I have found myself putting more impetus also on achievements and how you value even looking at yourself and the achievements that you want to make. But I want to start with the the just the interest, the whether it's yeah. play, fun, self care. What does Wendy do for herself? Yeah, I love that. I mean, there's so many great things to put in that category. I am a total outdoor. I mean, I it's it's about getting out into nature. You know, you're going back to the mental health category. I would say, like for me, mental health is on the on the practices side. It's two things. It's it's people and it's nature, right? Mm -hmm. So when I find that I'm sort of downward spiraling into my own kind of Self, my mind is kind of going into like its own ruminations that aren't helpful. Like it's about 
talking to people and connecting with people and getting out into nature. Mm-hmm. I and mean, then you're getting, we, we, I feel so lucky to be in a space where there's woods behind my house that I can walk, you know, and I feel so lucky to, uh, I feel really grateful that we decided to get a pandemic puppy. We have a dog now and so I take him out into the woods yeah. often. And I'm like, I'm so glad that he takes me out into the woods really. Um, so people in nature and uh, you know, so in, so to me, a great weekend would be hiking and camping. We don't do it often enough, but it would be hiking and camping um, being out in uh, you know, and, and what I love to do. And again, this is about talk about, trying to make time for what I love to do is um, several years ago, I started making time to do one-on-one overnight camping with each of my kids Mm. to have that sort of special memory with each of them. And, uh, and, you know, that's kind of an important component of my connection to them. And so I love, those are the, you know, I, I love running in the woods. I love being in the woods. I, I love being outdoors. So, yeah. uh, so that's what I would say. I, you know, I also really love cooking. Um, that partially comes from being vegan is, uh, is the, I, I really like the creativity of putting things together that are new. And I will say I love gardening and I suck at doing it. And here <laughs> is one where, where, I have learned that the both and for me, because I once said that I put together a garden where I probably made like the world's best $500 tomato by the time of like, that was all that came out of the garden. So the both and for me is that I feel very lucky to have some very good gardening friends in my community and I can value their gardens without having to continually try my hand at something that I have yet to find the time and way to make it work for me. <laughs> hey, so. me too. That's why I'm headed over to the farmer's market after this to benef- exactly. benefit from somebody else's uh, garden. Exactly. Well, then just, just looking at achievements and as you yeah. look at, you know, we talked about uh, how you're looking at the at work right now and what's happening and, the, you know, opportunities, and especially with a book coming out now and looking at the, uh, how do you look at the value of the achievements that are important to you yeah i mean there's so much to say here and um where i go in my mind is that yesterday when i had a hard day and i shared it with my 10 year old son he looked at me and he said mom i'm really proud of you and i know that you'll learn from this and to me that was like the greatest achievement which is to inculcate that sense of emotional intelligence and uh empathy in my 10 year old. Now I can't say that he always says that. I don't want to idealize a 10 year old and um, you know, watching my, my three kids grow up has been um, huge. Uh, what, what a, what an honor to be able to parent kids and inculcate values yeah. in them. I'm so grateful. So that's kind of where I go first, which is being able to be in that space and the achievements there. That's a, from a, from parents, that is a common achievement. I hear more and more as one at the top, Wendy, thank you. Thank you for, uh, just your, your humility and willingness to, to share. It's great to hear the behind the scenes and to hear how you play out this both and thinking in your day-to-day life as you work to balance it. Uh, in the balancing act of it all. Thank, thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for your time and just uh, the work you've done to bring us this message. Kevin, this is such a pleasure and I'm honored to join what an esteemed group of uh, 
guests that you have and great conversations that I've heard. So thank you for having me. Uh, thank you. Well, friends, that again is Wendy K. Smith, co-author of Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems, which you can find at Amazon or anywhere you get books. All right. Now, though, as promised, I've got more for you. Uh, wait, there's more. This now is a special note from my great friend, CEO of Ziegler and proud son of Zig Ziegler, Tom Ziegler, talking again about legacy. You're about to hear an excerpt from a podcast by Laurel Langmire with Tom, and you'll hear them mention an event that they are both hosting live in Reno, Nevada, October 26th through 28th, 2022 on generational wealth. But here Laurel's asking Tom, and it's a topic he'll talk about at the conference, but he's, she's asking how he defines what leaving a legacy looks like. Uh, again, I'm shamelessly promoting the event, but as you hear, the point of the clip is Tom talking about legacy, a hallmark of Ziegler. At the end of our days, we want to feel we had meaning on this earth, especially to those that we hold dear. So here's Laurel asking Tom about legacy. And again, if you're interested in the event that they're talking about, the Generational Wealth Conference, go to genwealthconference.com slash Tom Ziegler. All right, here we go. Hey, this is Laurel, and welcome back to Laurel's Road Money Talks, the podcast where we talk about just that, money and business. We're going to talk about how to make money, how to keep money, how to invest it, and how to use a team. Specifically today, I have uh, brought Tom Ziegler back. We talked about how to be a coach leader and the the workforce and how like staffing is such a big issue. So uh, I brought him back today to talk a little bit about a different topic called legacy. He's going to be one of our keynote speakers at our Gen W conference coming up October 26, 7, 8 uh, in 2022 in Reno, Nevada. We'll be at the Grand Sierra Resort and to have a beautiful ballroom and a beautiful stage set for you to come learn about generational wealth and legacy. So Tom Ziegler, if you don't know him, you probably have heard of his father, Zig Ziegler, um, has had, again, the rare privilege of uh, growing up with this amazing man, which is also, Tom, why I wanted to have you on, because I, I do want to ask you some personal questions. You go where you want with them about you and Zig and how Zig raised legacy with you and Julie, your beautiful families. Um, I, but Tom teaches, uh, he's got an amazing new book. In fact, it's just right here. Brand new book out. Um, and actually this was on a prior podcast. So make sure you uh, go listen and link into that podcast from before. Uh, but he speaks to billion dollar companies. He teaches companies. He teaches their leadership, how to be coach leaders, how to how to live in this new environment post-COVID. So that's a conversation that was already on a podcast. So go grab that. Uh, and Tom Ziegler, welcome back to uh, Laurel's Road Money Talks. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm so excited about coming to uh, the conference and talking about uh, one of my favorite subjects, which is legacy. So, Tom, start with that question, what is a legacy? There's so many people who um, have never even had this conversation yeah, well, there's a, you know, one of the things that I love about legacy, there's a quote by Mark Batterson, and he said this, an inheritance is what you leave to someone, a legacy is what you leave in someone. And so there's a big difference. You know, we we want to do right by our family. We want to set it up. We want to create a a financial security net for them. <laughs> but legacy is really how they make the choices and decisions once they've been given that gift. And we really uh, got to do both, right? We've got to do both if we're going to 
prepare those we love for the things that are coming along. So to me, legacy is when you prepare someone uh, to handle the furnace, you know, cause life's going to come at you. It doesn't, doesn't matter how much you plan and all the, all the things life can still hit you. And so legacy is, is when you prepare someone to make good choices, even when the times are tough. That's beautiful. I've, I haven't heard it said that way. That's, I'm going to I'm going to requote you over and over on that as we uh, walk into this event. You know, at the event, we're going to be doing some values work, some, uh, you know, mission work. Uh, talk a little bit about family missions, family intention and how is someone that's now here listening to our podcast? We have folks from all over the world. How do they begin? How would they even begin? They hear it. Right. They're kind of got what, what are you guys talking about? And <laughs> they have no starting points. Yeah, well, there's a real simple question uh, that I like to ask people, and that's, you know, what do you want other people to say behind your back about you? Like, <laughs> like when you're not in the room, what do you want them to say? Do you want them to say that you're kind, you're generous, you have integrity, you love, you know, or, you know, the stuff that we usually hear said about people behind their back, right? You can't trust them, all those things. So you start identifying what it is that you want to be known for. And when you put all those things, I call those the fruit of the tree. So if we have a tree and we're saying, okay, that's my tree, that tree represents me and my family, and the pieces of the fruit represent my reputation, what I'm known for, but the fruit can also represent uh, a vacation home, or it could represent a lifestyle that I want to live, or the ability to go and do what I want to do. But in order to have all those things, there's a saying, and the saying is, a tree's fruitfulness depends on its rootfulness. Mm. Okay. And so there's roots that have to nourish the tree. If the roots don't get any nourishment, the fruit dies. And when we talk about legacy, I think there's seven roots in our tree. There's the mental, which is the way we think. There's the spiritual, which is our principles and values and our faith. There's the physical, which is how we take care of our body. Uh, you know, how we make good choices about what we eat and sleep and all those things. Then there's the family and how we prepare the family. Then there's the financial because we have to be stewards of what God's given us. And we've got to share that information and the decisions that we make with our family. Then there's the personal, which is how do we create energy in our own life? What are the things that motivate and inspire us? Where do, where do we, you know, what do we do from a self-care perspective? And finally, there's the career. And I really don't like the word career. Um, <laughs> I just, I, to well, me, this your is... personal growth, right? You, like, to me, I call that like your personal growth. I don't know yeah. what word you use, but I don't like career either. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I call it the uh, the engine, which which creates the 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 income that you need to fuel your dreams. So you could be an entrepreneur, an investor, you could work somewhere. You can be a teacher. You can do any of those things. And all of them are so much bigger than career because if your life is totally wrapped up into the, into one of any one of these things, the others are going to suffer. And so those seven areas, mental, spiritual, physical, family, financial, personal, and career, those are the roots that we have. And so we need to create habits that nourish those roots and the question I ask people also is this, are you going to leave a legacy by design or by chance? Yeah. Cause we're all going to leave a legacy, right? I mean, 
whether yeah. we have any planning or thought or not, we're leaving a legacy. So what if we said, I want to leave a legacy by design and the legacy was meant, I like to say this, we want our legacy to ripple through eternity. Yeah. Right. I love that. <clears throat> and yeah. so wealth can be gained and lost and we can do, and sometimes life just happens, but the, the character, the knowledge, the wisdom that we have will always bring us back to the ability to do what we want to do. And so when we're talking about legacy, it's, it's not just knowledge, it's properly applied knowledge with the right motivation, the right character, the right integrity that sets us up for the long term. And I've been blessed, of course, you know, dad's legacy is unbelievable. Wherever I go in the world and speak, I have friends and family I haven't met there, right? Because he's impacted them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I love where you just went. Love the, that the design and by choice. So speak to those folks who haven't had any of these conversations. How would they begin these conversations Right, they're attracted to it. I want to I invite you to come to our Gen W conference. I mean, that's also what, what I, brought. I invited Tom specifically to come out and talk about this with you. And then uh, we have a group that is going to really dig into the nuts and bolts of wills and trusts and insurance and entities and taxes and all the nuts and bolts in the finance business side of it. Uh, but I wanted you exactly to do what you were doing, Tom, which is bring. Uh, I'm going to say a broader color and a broader spectrum to what we're talking about. So for the person listening, going, I like it. I have no idea how to begin. What advice would you tell them? (laughs) Oh, you know, if you're talking about family legacy, uh, Mm -hmm. the best place to begin is the dinner table. Uh, You, you have conversations on a regular basis, intentional. So it could be as simple as, you know, every Thursday night, we're going to have dinner. And at dinner, we're going to talk about a principle or a value. Uh, one of my friends who I shared this with, uh, he started doing it with his family, and they had their family values, right? They had their like their their, and so they decided and every family should do this. You get the kids involved, you get everybody involved, and you say, well, you know, what's the fruit we want on our tree? And so one of the pieces of fruit that they had on their tree. And, you know, we think of like love or kindness or respect or humility or integrity. They actually put the word weird on one of their pieces of fruit. And I I said, well, how did that happen? And so what they would do at night is they would at the dinner is they would say, well, what happened in school today? And the kids would talk about, you know, so-and-so got in trouble or this teacher said this or everybody's upset about this. And then the the dad, Charles, would say, well, um, what do your friends say? And then they would talk about the, the response their friends had. And then he would ask him, well, what do you think we should do? And his oldest daughter, Elizabeth, said, Dad, we're just weird. And he said, what do you mean? And she said, well, whatever everybody else does, it seems like we do the exact opposite. Well, let me tell you, if you got a weird family in this regard, that's a good thing because, and the world is about go along to get along. And, you know, we, we, we bow down to pressure and we, we want to be popular instead of respected. I mean, there's all these different things that are happening. And so we just make that a cop uh, topic of conversation on a, on a regular basis. That's how we get started. The worst thing that can happen is, 
when when an inheritance comes along and nobody knows what to expect, right? That should be like Illegal. out on the table early on. Yep, has to be. Well, and here's from a financial standpoint, and I'm just I have such uh, I'd say a heart and soul for this message is the burden you leave to the kids especially if they don't know and they're going to have a war. Like I just was uh, very intimately involved at the billion dollar family breakup here in Northern Nevada, billion dollar. It only lasted, I think they were on generation three or four, but there was no fruit of the tree. There was no values. Like everyone just got their trust and they got their distribution and no one was actually taught what to do with it. They were just handed this big bunch of money. And just like the Vanderbilt family, you know, you compare the Rockefeller family, the Vanderbilt family, there's not a millionaire in the Vanderbilts. Now, maybe they've grown up since, but when I did the research, they blew it all. And that's the, that's, and, and I should just blow it all because they just want to go out and go shopping and buy a bunch of stuff they don't need. They haven't been taught anything. They don't know how to manage real estate. You know, I have a, a saying, Tom, I don't know if I can probably share this with you, but it's called uh, a man is not a plan. Because I, you know, me, I'm funny and sarcastic and I thought that was kind of cute, but it really was from a very um, probably darker place. I mean, I got when I first started in this in 2000, a whole bunch of widows and they did not know how, what what they didn't know anything about the real estate, where the insurance was, where the stock certificate was, where the 401k was. They knew nothing. And I said, so a man's been your plan your whole life and now you're left to all of it. So what do most people do? They sell everything. They get a big tax burden. They have no money. And now they're broke. And it's just sad. The stories I could tell stories after stories after stories of, of why, you know, that path of not knowing is a very dangerous and sad one. It hurts the family desperately when you do it. Yeah, I, I have a quote and, it, and the quote is, uh, don't fall in love with success. Fall in love with the habits that create success. Mm. And so we could we could phrase it a little differently. We could say, don't fall in love with wealth fall in love with the habits that create wealth. Yeah. Right. And security and all those things. Because if you, if you hand somebody a pile of money, but no instructions, um, the self image is a weird thing. If you don't feel like you earned it and you, and you don't deserve it, that money is going to depart as fast as possible. I mean, it's like, we see it all the time with overnight lottery winners and athletes and celebrities who struggle, struggle, struggle. And then by, coincidence or luck or, you know, just perfect timing. They all of a sudden hit the jackpot, yeah. but they don't believe they deserve it. And so we've got to build into somebody from a legacy perspective. Hey, this is how we handle this. This is how we make this decision. Yeah. Uh, one of the simplest things somebody told me years and years ago is they said, Hey, only spend great grand dollars on luxury. And interesting. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, you want your money to work for you. So, you know, you, you save your percentage or you do what you want. And then, and then that bears interest. Well, that's the kids, right? Well, then that interest bears interest and that's the grandkids. And then that interest bears interest and that's the great grandkids. And so it just, and that's what you buy stuff with luxury one. They weren't saying, you know, live in poverty and all that stuff. They were just saying, Hey, really understand the difference between a need and a want. And don't, dad said this, he said uh, that the number one reason people do not achieve their goals is they trade what they want most for what they want now. 
Mm. And so in legacy, we, we've got to really make it clear what we want most, right? So that we don't start trading what we want most for what we want now. Oh, that's brilliant. You have so many good quotes. I wonder where you got them all. Tell me, (laughs) tell me about, uh, Tell me more about Zig. Tell our listening audience, right? I don't know that they've ever had the the privilege. I actually uh, met your father and uh, just, you know, it's not even so inspirational. I mean, just brilliant, um, kind, integrity, everything that you're speaking of. Uh, tell us some of your family legacy kind of experiences, things that went on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, dad was amazing. He, we estimate he impacted about 250 million people in his life. Uh, 45 books. There was a 30 year span where he spoke 30 times a year to at least 12,000 people each time. Those were the big events that were going on. That's never going to happen again. I mean, between, between the internet and the the way we learn and marketing and media, it's just never, there's going to be big events, but it's never going to go city to city to city. Like, like he did. And, and people, they loved him and they would, they would be inspired by his message but the thing that really changed them was when they stood in line to get an autograph and mm-hmm. they might wait two or three hours. I mean, I, I remember events where uh, the auto, he got done speaking at one in the morning and he was signing until four in the morning and people wow. were standing there all of these, you know, all of these hours. And then when he passed away, we had, I think it was 12,000 comments on Facebook and not just, you know, rest in peace. But I mean, like paragraphs of people. And the common theme was this, uh, you know, when what Zig Ziglar inspired me, I heard him speak. But when I stood in line, it was like I was and then I finally met him, even though it was only for a minute, it was like I was the only one in the room. And that to me is legacy. So so none of us can be Zig Ziglar on stage because there's only one, but all of us can be Zig Ziglar one-on-one. And so maybe the most powerful legacy is just the people you're around. They know that they're the most important people to you because of the way you treat them face to face. And so when you, when you embody that, when you, when, when you care about somebody and you want the best for them, that's that's a that's a game changer because today it's all surface you know we have we have 5000 friends right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we know 10 of them <laughs> wait a second you know we need we need to develop that deeper relationship so legacy is about relationship it's about how well we know someone and wanting the best for them um you know there's some stories i'm going to i'm going to save for when we're together but uh, legacy was very intentional in our family. In all of those areas at dinner tables, I would assume. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> dad, dad did something and I'll tell some stories about this, but, uh, he, he took us all, my sisters and, and me, as we were growing up, we traveled with him when he worked. Yep. Because he wanted us to see how business was done. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's more than just saying, hey, this is how we do business. It's actually, because he asked me, like, I'll remember, I remember this one event. Uh, we were in a green room. It was a huge oil and gas company. 
uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. They probably had a couple thousand people there from their company. And in the green room, the executives were there. And these were very seasoned, probably 30-year average career people. And they were cussing like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and I, I had never been around that, right? Because very conservative, Southern Baptist, you know, cussing was not something we did. Uh, dad, dad believed so much in the power of the word, uh, the spoken word. You know, he didn't want to off-put anybody or change anything. And so I, when we left, I said, Dad, those, those people sure were cussing a lot. And I knew why they were. They were oil and gas. They came out of the fields, right? I mean, they former military came out of the fields, all that stuff. And uh, dad looked at me and he said, son, two things. He said, never discount the knowledge and the wisdom they have because of their language. Mm. And then he said, but isn't it a shame that by choosing the words they choose, some people may may reject what they have to offer. Mm. <laughs> that was like, well, that was a lesson that right. that could only happen because we were in the room together. I was traveling with him. He wanted me to see what he did. And then we talked about what happened. And that is the best way to create legacy. And that's the way it was all through history until probably the last couple hundred years or hundred years, right? You learned with what you did, what your parents did, and you you worked beside them from the time you could, you know, five or six years old. Yep, and and then it changed. And you know, when I uh, decided to uh, be a mom in nineteen ninety nine, a single mom, uh, that was uh, where I went as well. I said I'm going to take them with me everywhere I go. And so you know, my kids were blessed to travel all over the world multiple times, and. You know, some of the, um, it was so interesting. My son just won a huge scholar award and um, I he named me his hero. And he said, one of the biggest memories and the best times were our 14 hour to 17 hour plane rides where it was just he and I, super young, sitting side by side in, you know, business first class, wherever we were, watching a movie together, eating together. And there was no phone, no interruption, no people, no nothing. But I thought, what an interesting moment for him to remember of all those times is is those times right uh which are in plane rides right it's just uh, it's interesting my daughter has a similar but very you know different place hers was more in the hotel rooms and uh being in the back of the room she loved being in the back of the room and i i, I always encourage folks who don't take their kids along on this journey uh i mean just there's so much they're just going to learn by being in the space, you know, being in your space, being in your presence and uh, and through who your values are. So, uh, Tom, I cannot wait to hear more stories and more insights as you uh, uh, lead us in our uh, keynote. Um, actually, you'll be our exiting keynote on Friday. Tom will be on with us. And uh, for those of you in the big table, we'll be staying on through the big table with us and look forward to even a more depth. Uh, conversation more back to the leadership and coach leader, but we have time for a couple of days. So those of you who want to sign up, go to genwealthconference.com, genwealthconference.com forward slash Tom Ziegler. 
get signed up right away and we will see you in Reno, Nevada. We've uh, got a great hotel, beautiful uh, food options, family options. And yes, it's a family event. I've taken my kids all over the world. And um, as I would say, as long as they are teenagers and, and can be in an adult room, we won't be doing much breakouts because we want you to be with your family. You will do it. You'll be doing some homework. We're going to give you a legacy book to start writing all this down and planning your first legacy journal. So that's how uh, we're going to begin our event. So we look forward to uh, all of you out there being there. If you have any questions, go to asklaurel.com. And Tom, any last words to our audience before we see them in uh, in Reno, October 26th, 7th and 8th? Yeah, well, they say uh, the two best times to plant a tree is 20 years ago and, and today, right? Mm-hmm. And legacy is the same way. Uh, we've actually, you've already started creating a legacy, but the good news is, you can make it really intentional uh, for the rest of your time here on this earth. And, and the impact will ripple through eternity. You can look at families who've done it right yeah. and their kids, their grandkids, the great grandkids, you can see the track. And then you can see families that have done it wrong and you just don't want to go there. Uh, might as well build your future on a, on a dream, get inspired by a dream instead of reacting to a disaster. Oh, I like that. Well, there you go, friends, a great add-on value in this podcast from Tom Ziegler. And again, that Generational Wealth Conference, it's in Reno, Nevada, October 26th through the 28th, 2022. You can find details at Gen, G-E-N, as in generational, genwealthconference.com slash Tom Ziegler. Hey, thank you, as always, for choosing to tune into this self-helpful podcast. If you got value, love for you to subscribe, leave a review about what your thoughts were on this episode and the show at large. Best of all, take something that you learned today, share it with someone else, talk about it. I hope, sincerely, I have helped you help yourself so that you can help others. Help others.